Gary Chapman rendered a great service to the church when he wrote his book, The Five Love Languages, nearly 20 years ago. Um, <clears throat> this book is primarily intended to help husbands and wives understand the best ways to express love to one another, but it really works for all of our relationships. The basic premise of Chapman's book is that we all receive love in one of five ways. In other words, when somebody does something for us, that indicates that they care very deeply about us in one of five ways. Physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, focused attention, and the receiving of gifts. Now, you, some of you have known about this for a long time. If others of you, if this is the first you're hearing about it, it's really important because... <clears throat> It helps us to recognize that when we're saying I love you sometimes, the other person is not hearing it because they have a different language. Most of us have one or two primary love languages. For instance, say a person has the the love language of acts of service. Suppose a husband has the love language of acts of service, but his wife's love language is focused attention. He may come home early from work one day, work around the house, just do a lot of awesome things. She walks in, doesn't even say a word about it. You know, and he's saying, he's waiting, waiting. Later that night, they're sitting there and, and, at the sofa, and she says, you know, I just I feel like you're distant. I don't feel, I know you love me, but I, and he says, what? I did all of that. I spent two hours cleaning this house or doing this or that. And you, it's what makes love tricky. Love in life is tricky because some of the times we're trying to communicate something to someone and they're not hearing it at all. Why all this talk about love languages when we're going through the book of Acts? Well, one of the reasons is because the Apostle Paul's love language is so very evident in our text. That is, words of affirmation or on a more general note, encouragement. This whole chapter that we're about to read today, Acts chapter 20, is about encouragement in the body. The importance of building one another up, lifting one another up in the Lord. And just because words of affirmation or or, or because encouragement is not your particular love language, that's no excuse for not giving it or expressing it to others whose language it is. We have limited time today because of uh, our communion, which is not in any way <laughs> a, a, a bad thing. It's, it's not in, in position. It's an awesome thing, but it does limit our time in, in, in this text. And so we'll do what we've done before, and that is to put up some basic truths that we're going to be looking at in this text on the screen. And I always feel reluctant to ask you to write these down or to encourage you to write these down, but I can assure you it's the best way of getting the most out of this time. If you'll go back and look at these truths sometimes during the week for study or even for a quiet time this week, you'll get far more from this chapter than we're able to glean uh, on, on a Sunday morning. We'll, we'll divert from this first slide in just a moment. So if you're writing, we'll come back to it uh, a little bit later. We're going to begin with the truth that body life in the church must be healthy if significant gospel advancement is to occur. Now, having stated that, let me just say that the Lord often works 
in spite of us, not because of us. It's not because we're doing things so well that he says, okay, I believe I'm going to bless these guys and spread the gospel. Because, But it's true that if they're... If the body is unhealthy, it's just difficult to minister. Just think about what it's like in your own household. Suppose children are sick and parents are sick at the same time. It's difficult. You can't. The healthy person is the one who takes care of everybody else. So there, there needs to be a healthy body in order for the gospel to advance. Um. And, and that's a truth that is observed here uh, in many ways. So let's look at a few subpoints here. First, we're going to observe Paul giving detailed attention to the health of the churches that were already in existence. It's one of the ways that we see encouragement as Paul's love language. Uh, uh, just a, a little bit of a broader look at Scripture confirms what we already suspect, that Paul needed to receive encouragement from others as much as he desired to give it. Paul rarely traveled alone. And when he was alone, he struggled emotionally. You remember a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 17, he was at, uh, he was at Athens and he preached to this group at the Areopagus or well, dialogued with them. And things didn't go as well as he wanted. He was just discouraged. He left and headed for Corinth. Silas and Timothy were supposed to meet him, but he just he said, I, 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 I'm just going to go to Corinth. He got there, and Aquila and Priscilla were encouragements to him. And, and also Silas and Timothy caught up, probably bringing an offering from the Philippian church. But even still, Paul was just in a funk. He was He was deeply discouraged. And so the Lord... Jesus felt compelled to come to him or was compelled to come to him in a vision and say, don't give up, Paul. Don't quit. Hang in there. Also, when you read 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that we have from Paul, he's telling Timothy, I'm I'm here in prison alone. Luke is here with me. He's the only one left. Everybody else is gone. Some for ministry, some because they've just walked away from the faith. And you can sense a great loneliness in Paul's spirit. He, he just worked better in a team than he did alone. Whenever there was conflict in the body as well, Paul suffered. My goodness, in these chapters, there's so much going on during this time where Paul is traveling that, that we have to piece together from other uh, books in the New Testament where Paul has written letters. And especially with the church at Corinth, he's discouraged because he's had to write them this sharp letter. We, we think about Paul being rather sharp. He's really only sharp in a couple of places, where the gospel is at stake or where people are living in such a way that the world around them looks and says, this is what Jesus is about. So it's all about the gospel. Those are the only times he's sharp. But Paul is quite an encourager. He lifts up people, individuals. He praises them in front of others. And he's always trying to encourage people in the Lord. But he had to write that difficult letter to the people at Corinth. And it just tore him up until he could find out how did they receive it. When he found out that they repented of sin and that they were still 
very much um, connected with Paul spiritually and emotionally. It just did his heart good. But he even missed opportunities to present the gospel because he had to go find Titus. Titus had been sent to Corinth and he, and he, and he just couldn't rest until he heard from Titus that everything was okay, that the people at Corinth had responded well and that he was back in fellowship with them and in communion with them. Whenever there was conflict in the ball in, in the body, Paul suffered. In addition to the health of the body, we're going to see in Acts 20 that God is sovereign. Even when well-intended gospel advancement plans don't come off as they were designed. God's will is often as much about closed doors as open doors. And we don't like that. Because we're all about open doors. We want open doors. And how many times have you desperately wanted to do something and God said no? You know, and if, if the truth were known, how, wouldn't it be interesting if the Lord just made for one day you, our expressions that are on the inside, our feelings that are on the inside to come out in our expressions? You know, God would close the door and we'd go, Neh! You know, and everybody would see what we're really feeling on the inside. We're just so frustrated, so upset. And then three years down the road, you say, Oh, God, thank you so much for closing that door. Because he sees so much more than we see. And his will for us is always good. He loves us deeply. And so sometimes even when our plan is to advance the gospel and God closes that door, it's for a reason. We'll also see in this chapter that planning churches from existing churches is close to God's heart. My goodness, you just wait till you see the group of people that was traveling with Paul and why they were with him. Then when we get to the end of the chapter, we'll see the one address that Paul shared with believers that's recorded in the book of Acts. And he's talking to leaders of a church. Or excuse me, it's the one address Paul gives that's recorded in the book of Acts to Christians. But they are specifically, this address is specifically to Christian leaders. And the, and the charge is, you better watch out for yourself before you start trying to lead other people. This is an important address, and we'll get there. Well, the last truth we're going to learn from this chapter is to fall asleep during the preaching of the sermon could create big problems for you. That's my attempt at levity this morning. But it'll make sense in just... A little bit. We're going to pray and then jump right into the book of, uh, or chapter 20 of the book of Acts. And we will not stand as we read scripture because of the way that we're working through it. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. And we draw so much encouragement from you. Even when life is dark and senseless and purposeless and we're adrift. Father, you have created this body of Christ, the body of Christ at large, which consists of all Christians of all ages, but also specifically this body of Christ known as Grace Community Church. And Lord, you encourage us through our brothers and sisters in the body. And we ask that you open our hearts to all that you have for us. May we receive it with joy as it was intended. In Christ's name.
verse 1. After the uproar ceased. Where was the uproar? Anybody remember? From last Sunday? It was in Ephesus. (coughs) Excuse me. It, It had been quite a riot in, in, in the town of Ephesus, uh, Paul had spent a great deal of time, two years, three months at that particular time, maybe as much as three years. He had spent at the very end, Christian, Paul's preaching of the gospel and all of the church that was growing was making such an impact that <clears throat> the makers of idols saw it as a great threat to their business. And so there was this uproar. And after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions, he had given them much, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Okay, we did this a few weeks ago. Let me encourage you to go to the back of your Bibles. Look at the back of your Bible at a map of, of Paul's third missionary journey. And you're going to want to see, not only right here at this particular verse, but a few verses down when Paul starts mentioning all the people that are with him, you're going to want to see where they're from. <clears throat> In this trip, this trip for encouragement uh, he, <clears throat> through Macedonia, he probably spent several months encouraging uh, people in churches in places like Berea, Thessalonica, in Philippi. He came to Greece almost certainly in Corinth. And there it says in verse 3, he spent three months, probably during the winter months. It wasn't good traveling uh, on the Mediterranean Sea in the winter months. And so they stayed in Corinth three months. And it was at this time that Paul wrote this manifesto of the Christian faith, the great letter that we know as the book of Romans during the winter months there in Corinth. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go through Macedonia. Paul had wanted to make Passover in Jerusalem, but now there's this, this plot against him by these Jews, as they were going to set sail for Syria, he was going to go to Antioch first and then down to Jerusalem. But because he had heard that people were going to kill him, he he changed plans. And he went through, um, is it Macedonia? Let me see. Yeah, he, he went, he decided to return through Macedonia. So God sovereignly interrupted Paul's plans. Notice that Paul didn't say, hey, God is with me. He'll take care of me. These Jews think they're going to kill me, but I'm going to... No, he changed his plans. Now, when he goes to Jerusalem, he goes, as we'll see a little bit later, knowing that there's going to be trouble there. But he wanted to get there, so he changed his plans. God's will is not always as easy as we make it out to be. Sometimes he leads us one way, sometimes he leads us another. One, one thing we know for sure is that the church as a whole, was the beneficiary of God's interruption of Paul's plan because he was able to give much more encouragement to individual churches. And now at this point, Luke interrupts the tale of this journey to tell us who Paul's traveling companions were. 
So make sure to look on your maps to see the provinces and the cities from which these people come. Sopater, verse 4, Sopater the Berean, so Berea is represented, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. Mothers, don't name your sons Secundus, please. And Gaius of Derby, and Timothy from Lystra, and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus from Ephesus. Why would Paul have such a diverse group traveling with him? I mean, they're all over this area. Well, most likely he was mentoring them to do the same thing he was doing, to, to preach the gospel in cities. Paul went to the major cities, but all of these outlying areas needed to hear the gospel. And he was very likely training them to do the same things. Preach the gospel, establish churches. I'm not sure if you know this, but both David Calvert and Sean Cross in our church have a a great burden and desire to plant churches, either to plant churches or to revive churches that are struggling. And we have an awesome opportunity to, to help them prepare for those days and then to come alongside of them in support. It's part of God's heart for one church to plant other churches. Now, God may redirect their plans just as he's done for Paul and, and, and so many others in the book of Acts. But that's their goal right now, and we're excited about it. Back to our text. Verse 5. And by the way, just think about these guys who were with Paul. Weren't they needed in their home churches? These were probably awesome guys that would be phenomenal leaders in their own churches. And yet those churches said, you know what? We're sending them out, sending them out to plant churches in other places. Verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Paul had wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now he's probably celebrating Easter with these Christians in Philippi. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we had stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, or to include communion with a love feast, or as we would call it, a potluck. That's what they did. In the early church, they would gather together for a community meal. And during that community meal, they would have communion. We're going to do that someday here. Someday, probably in the next several months, we're going to gather together. We're going to bring our food, have our tables all set up. We're going to have the service as a meal. And sometime during that meal, we're going to have communion. That's the way it was done in the early church. And that's what was happening on this place. So they had gathered together on the first day of the week. One of the places we go in Scripture to understand that that church is supposed to, the churches are to gather on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16 is another place where we see that the churches gather on the first day of the week. And on that day, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. These were not Methodists to whom Paul was speaking. They stayed there until midnight. Now, this speech was not a sermon like I'm giving this morning. It was a dialogue. There was question and answer. It was like a Bible study. 
So you can imagine in the early exciting days of the church how awesome this time was for these people. It was awesome for most everybody. Uh, There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, who found it not quite so awesome, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So all the people say, oh, poor Eutychus, and all the preachers say, well, you know, just kidding. It's tough, look. When I'm out there and somebody else is preaching, it's as difficult for me sometimes as it is for you to stay awake. Well, Eutychus falls down three stories. Luke, remember who's on the scene? Luke, the doctor. This is not just that he's had the breath knocked out of him and he's knocked unconscious. He is dead. They took him up (coughs) dead. So what's about to happen is a clear miracle. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed. So they started about six o'clock at night and finished about six the next morning. Now that's church. I don't know. I'm I'm too ADD for that. I I just, uh, I don't know. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Now, this is interesting. They sailed and met Paul, but he went by land, probably by himself. So here's this guy who who desperately needs company. I mean, we see this. He loves to... To, to, to minister always with other people. You get the sense that there were a lot more people with Paul than, than we read about in these times. And yet, he's walking by land to get to Asas, where he's going to meet up with his companions, probably preparing his heart and mind for Jerusalem. As we're going to see very soon, he knows he's going to receive, find a lot of trouble in Jerusalem, but his heart is bent. It is set on Jerusalem. And so he's praying, communing with the Lord, preparing <clears throat> for that day. Verse 14, when he met us at Assas, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we touched at Samos. The day after that, we went to Miletus. They're just going down the coast. They're getting on the boat in the morning. That part of the world that time of the year the winds blow from the north during the morning there's a strong wind and through the day gradually it dies to to where sunset there's just no wind at all so they would go from port to port getting ready for the big um, trip across the Mediterranean a little later so we we went to Mytilene and they finally came to Miletus in verse 15. Verse 16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He had missed Passover. Now he's looking for for Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. 
So he didn't go to Ephesus because he knew he would get tied up there. But he said, could you guys please come down here and meet me? And so they did. The, the address we're about to read would have never happened if Paul had not experienced the delays. And there's just so much that's important in this particular place. And in this address, in this verse, verse 17, the church leaders are called elders. In verse 28, he is going to call these same church leaders overseers, and he's going to say, you have a charge to shepherd the flock. He's going to say, keep watch over yourselves and keep watch over the flock. That word is poimain, and uh, it literally means Shepherd. It, it means to shepherd the church. So there are three terms that are used for the church leaders, and they're all reser- referring to the same people, to the same office. Elder, overseer, shepherd. And all of it's always seen in the New Testament in a group effort. It's always a team that is called to lead the church. So in other words, the elders of grace are also called to be shepherds and overseers of the church. Verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testify in both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very concise summary of the gospel. Repent of sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to repeat what Sean said last week. When you share your testimony, if Jesus Christ is not a prominent part of your testimony, then there's a very strong chance that you're not a Christian. I mean, just think of the name Christian. What does it mean? Follower of Christ, little Christ. It means one who whose life is wrapped up in Jesus. And so many people talk about God and about the church and about prayer and about meaning and life and purpose, but if Jesus isn't there, we're not Christians. This is what it means to be a Christian. Repent of your sin. Believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place. Believe that God sent him as a sacrifice. We're going to talk more specifically about that when we come to communion. But, but please understand the importance of being with Jesus. Remember last week we talked, in, <clears throat> Sean talked about the disciples of John the Baptist, and, and, and Paul told them about Jesus, and they were baptized with the Spirit, and they were also baptized by water. There are four things that always happen in the book of Acts when someone is saved. We don't see them all four listed at each time, but these four things happen over and over again. Repentance of sin, faith in Christ, baptism of the Spirit, and that simply means that the Spirit comes to indwell. Uh, on a, a very few occasions in the book of Acts, people spoke with tongues and there was evidence of the baptism. But anybody who is saved is baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. That's the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit comes to dwell in us from that time on. 
So baptism of the Spirit and water baptism. On the 17th of this month, two weeks from today, we're going to be having a baptismal service here, as has already been mentioned. And if you have never been baptized by water, if you've trusted Christ but you've never said to the world, I belong to Jesus, and that's what you're doing when you're baptized uh, by water, then please see me. I want to talk to you and, and, and talk about that day. So, let's keep moving. Verse 22. And now, Paul, remember Paul's talking to the elders. Now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul earlier has avoided persecution by not going on that ship where the Jews had planned to kill him. And now he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit tells me that I (coughs) am going to have trouble there. A lot of people debate whether or not Paul was in or out of God's will by going to Jerusalem when there was so much evidence that there was going to be trouble there. A couple of things let me say about that. First of all, God's will, as I've already mentioned, is not that easy. God's will is more about making a good decision than guessing what God wants you to do. And sometimes it may be right to do this, and sometimes it may not be right to do this. Secondly, it seems to me from these verses, though, that the Holy Spirit is saying, get down there, but when you go, I just want to know, you're going to have trouble. And very likely the Holy Spirit was also telling him, that's okay, I will be with you. God is with you. As you go, Paul. Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What a verse! Back in the day, back, back when I was a young man, which was, just seems like yesterday... wasn't though, I will admit. Everybody, the big thing in Christian circles was you need to have a life verse. How many of you have a life verse? Anybody have a life verse? All right, just the old folks. Tom and me, that's it. Maybe it was a Tennessee Temple thing, huh, Tom? Must have been. Um, But wouldn't this be an awesome life verse? I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I do not shrink from declaring to you, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is referring back to Ezekiel 3, where Ezekiel said to the watchmen of Israel, when you see the Israelites in their sin, and you fail to warn them of judgment that is going to come because of their sin, and they die in their sin, their blood will be on your head. If, on the other hand, you warn them about their sin 
and they die anyway, their blood is not on your head. If they turn from their way, great. They're not judged. The point for us in the New Testament is we have the gospel of Christ. And if we fail to warn people of the fate that awaits them, if they do not receive Jesus, then their blood will be on our heads and on our hands. Their blood is going to be on us. That doesn't mean that every, we got a witness to every single person we meet. But it does mean that we have to take advantage of gospel opportunities. And there are far more gospel opportunities that we have with people than we are aware most of the time because we're just not thinking along those lines. Paul was. He took God's word very seriously and he said, I don't want to be guilty of not sharing to someone, sharing with someone. You need to trust Jesus before you leave this world. Because life goes on. And the fate of those who don't know Jesus is horrible. I believe not only in heaven, but in hell. That is eternal. Not everybody does today. I do. And, it's, and I can go to scripture over and over and show you why. And really, the wrath of God, which we are going to, come to this table and we recognize that the wrath of God that was, that was intended for us and rightly intended for us because of our sin was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. But for those who refuse the gift of salvation through Jesus, the wrath of God continues to be poured out. And it will be for all eternity far better that we stand behind Jesus. You remember when you were a child? I, look, if, if, if Allison and I walked up to a house and this dog comes around the corner, Rawr! I'd be tempted to get behind her. I'd stand in front of her, but I would be tempted to get behind her, I can tell you that. We need to stand behind Jesus and allow God's wrath to be poured out on him. And that's what we need to tell people. Verse 28. Now he's talking to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Lord, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. This is really interesting. Church of God. Almost any time you see the word God in the New Testament, it's referring to the Father. Almost any time you see the word Lord, it's referring to Jesus. He's saying that the blood of God purchased the church. This is a, a, a very remarkable statement about the deity of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 29 is sad. Verse 30 is tragic. Verse 29 says that here's this body and there are going to be people come in from the outside who are, who are going to try to twist the truth. 
It's tragic to think, though, that there will be people who rise from among you. And some think that Paul was saying, even to the elders that were there. And when you read First and Second Timothy later, you were, when, when Timothy was the pastor at the church of Ephesus, he was the teaching elder at the church of Ephesus, you will see that from within the church, heretics arose, and they carried a lot of people with them. The primary responsibility of the elders is this, to make sure that truth is protected in the body. Now, almost all of you grew up in churches where the pastor, the guy who stands up here, has two responsibilities. One is to preach, oftentimes Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and the other is to visit the sick, go to the rest homes, go everywhere that you can possibly go and take care of people. And that is part of the job of the pastor but remember two things first of all the pastor is not a pastor it's pastors it's a team of men who have been called to lead the church but then secondly the primary responsibility is to protect truth in the body that's the number one call of the elder verse 31 therefore Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who were sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed and blessed to give than to receive. Have you found that to be true? I I know that many of you have. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him him to the ship. There is encouragement from start to finish in Acts 20. So may I make a challenge to you this week? Would you commit to encourage at least one believer. In fact, let's be, let's be more specific. Encourage one person in this body every day this week. We should do it four or five weeks and then it would be a pattern. But just this challenge, would you take this challenge, commit to encourage one person in this body every day this week. Well, part of the benefit that we receive from Jesus' death is that we are made one in him. Nowhere is this picture of unity seen more clearly and more beautifully than in the table. When we come together to fellowship with one another as we participate or fellowship in the body and the blood of Christ. So I'm going to ask elders if they would come and deacons to come and prepare to help serve communion.